Welcome to the Pubway Podcast. Each episode will showcase a conversation with a leader from the publishing world. If you're working at a publisher, a DSP or SSP, or you're just curious about the media industry and want to sit down and pick the brains of the experts from within the publishing space, then this is the show for you. Hello, and welcome to the Pubway Podcast. My name is Tina Yanakino, And I'm Mike Villalobos. And in today's episode, we're taking a little bit of a different approach uh, with a lens of legal. Uh, we're going to talk about how legislation has impacted technology, innovation, um, and generally the landscape that we're in today. And it's our pleasure to introduce Alan Chappelle, who's been a industry vet for over 20 years, working with over 100 companies on the full gambit of privacy issues, focusing on privacy and product as needs as a CPO and as both outside counsel. Well, thanks so much for having me, Tina. Nice to meet you, Mike. Yeah, so to kick things off, um, how does the concept of Privacy Sandbox address the growing concerns around user privacy in the digital landscape? And what do you think are its potential implications for the advertising industry at large? Whew, okay. <laughs> We're bringing the heat on the first question, Tina. All right, we so I, I think just first as a little background, I mean, you know, it, the, the ad tech or the data-driven advertising space has been relatively unregulated for going, you know, 20, 25 years. And that started to change. And we can, we can point to a whole bunch of points where that's, you know, the lines of demarcation. Maybe it was GDPR. Uh, maybe it was the initial reboot of COPPA back in, what, 20, uh, 2012, 2013. But, but the reality is that, that there's a lot of pressure on our marketplace. Pressure's coming from regulators like the FTC, certainly different supervisory authorities in the European Union. And pressure is also coming on the legislative side. Uh, and for better or worse, the U.S. has failed to, to create a comprehensive uh, privacy law. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we've got 12 states or so that are and counting that are, that are creating their own uh, state privacy law, which is going to be a lot of fun to figure out how to comply with. But, but the, the, the main point here is that there is a huge vacuum within our space on the regulatory front. And that's where comp companies like Apple and Google, who own you know, these large platforms, come in. And they see that as their job, for better or worse, uh, to, to step in where the governments are, have failed. And that's really kind of what, where I think the, the larger premise behind the privacy sandbox uh, was generated. And, and now I think there's a, a, a robust debate to be had about, you know, number one, will the thing actually work? Number two, will Google ultimately use that to self-preference given the number of credible allegations going back 10 years that they've self-preferenced in other places? Uh, you know, uh, and then are they going to change the rules? So, you know, if you're a publisher or an ad tech or anybody within that ecosystem, can you spend the resources that you need to uh, building something uh, confident that the rules aren't going to be changed and the rug isn't going to be pulled out from under you at some point? One of the questions I had was, I think, the slow take that Google has taken Right when you look at the way they've approached the market, we have one percent of deprecation happening in Q1. Uh, September 27th, this is supposed to be five percent of deprecation. Uh, I doubt it goes any farther than that, given that Q4 is such a major, major part of the ad business in general. Um, when you look at the comparative approaches from Safari being fully deprecated back, I think now it's 2017 to now, you look at Google rolling it out now, but in very small tranches. How would you compare those strategies? Do you think one's better than the other? Um, their stances in the market. Would love to get your opinion on um, their market approach, 
but also yeah. if you think subjectively if it was a good idea or not. <laughs> a little hot well, take, why not? Yeah, so so uh, I, I like to think of, of Apple as sort of the Bill Belichick of, of the ad world. Where <laughs> Don't say that in front of Tina. <laughs> Apple, <laughs> Apple does what Apple wants to do, and they literally stick their middle finger out at everybody. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, too bad, so sad. Uh, meanwhile, they've created a rule set that has sort of enabled Apple to create a competitive ad offering. Sure. Uh, okay, so now Google is looking at that and thinking, hmm, all right, well, and, and their approach is a little closer to Ted Lasso where they're all smiles and friendly and whatever, but, but you know, <laughs> the, the only difference between uh, Ted Lasso and Google is at the end of the day, Google's going to have even more money than Ted Lasso has. He's doing pretty well right now, but, but what, 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 what Google's approach is, is, is a little disingenuous because they're saying that they're doing this for privacy, but at the end of this, a couple of things you want to keep in mind. Number one, the footprint available to Google when third-party cookies get deprecated is like 95 to 97% of what it is prior to their being deprecated. That's not Alan Chappelle talking. That's a UC Davis study uh, that took a look at the impact of third-party cookie deprecation. It just came out a couple of months ago. So, you know, for all of the, yes, we need to rein in cross-site tracking, well, Google's ability to cross-site track once cookies get deprecated is going to be almost the same as it was prior to cookies being deprecated. Um, so on the one hand, you can give Google a lot of credit because they are trying to be somewhat collaborative, but, but the, the definite, but you have to really think about what you mean by collaborative because, you know, they engaged the W3C, right? A standards body. And they sort of held it out as like, we're going to create a better advertising world. But that's not really what they were doing. It wasn't so much that everybody was trying to, you know, coming up with ideas. Uh, it was a, hey, this is what Chrome is going to do, and we are going to give you, the rest of the industry, a limited amount of input into this ad product that we're creating. Now, I'm not here to say that's a good or a bad thing, but, but when you hold it out as this, like we're creating an industry standard, that's not what that was. It was a, we got some input into the thing that we're creating. And, you know, I keep coming back to the term collaborative. Well, you know, uh, it, they say that everybody has access to these APIs, but the reality on the ground is very different. And when presented with that, you know, that, hey, guys, you know, a very large percentage of this marketplace doesn't actually have access to these APIs. Well, then Google's response is something like, well, yeah, I guess that's true. But, but you know, cookies required some interaction. And it's like, well, wait, hold on, guys. <laughs> this is not an apples to apples comparison. There are, I know of three companies who Apple's people, I'm sorry, Google's people have said, well, why don't you just build a bidder? Like, that's their response to getting access to the API. And it's like, well, okay, how many ad tech companies have, you know, several million dollars to build a bidder or they have one sitting on the shelf? And if you do it, so I guess my larger point here is that it's a collaboration, but it's one that requires this tremendous amount of trust amongst the ecosystem and a fair amount of investment in something that we don't know if it works yet. That's fair. I think to your point, and, and 
by no means trying to plug any company right now, but we've been included in this to, to this collaborative environment as well. Uh, and it's interesting because it's us plus four others, and then you have another like realm of API connections. Some APIs actually got fully deprecated in and of itself throughout the process. So uh, it's a bit opaque on what they're going to go with and also what's going to be the, the standard. But I think the, the word collaboration is uh, loosely used, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and really, here's the elephant in the room that we haven't even raised yet. We don't know that this thing works. You know, if, if you talk to the Google people, the, 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 the privacy sandbox, like privacy product marketing team, they're talking as if this thing is ready to go today and it's, it's already working. And yet, there has not been a single bit of evidence that suggests that this thing works yet. So how about we hold off a little bit until Chrome is able to actually provide some evidence that this thing works? Because to date, the only thing that I've seen has been uh, you know, something that required third-party cookies to be enacted in order to do the compare and contrast. And you, you can't use third-party cookies in your analysis here because those are going to be going away pretty soon. So we'll see at the 1% or maybe at the 5%, you know, maybe we get to the point where this thing works. But I think what people who are starting to look under the hood are, are starting to see is that this thing is not yet ready for prime time. And what Google is trying to do is to say, oh, well, we don't want to disappoint everybody uh, by delaying cookies again. It's just better to have this, this new you know, set of tools just released to the marketplace. But these tools may very well not be ready for prime time. I mean, heck, you can't do frequency capping. You can't even do competitive ad separation. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that we know for a fact this thing can't do. Um, and, and we haven't even gotten into the real testing. And, and then there's an open question, like, how much is Google going to support this thing? You know, is, is there somebody, you know, is there somebody that some DSP can call when something breaks? Because stuff is going to break. This is a whole new thing. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the entire approach here is, is, uh, is, I find, a little frustrating because everybody is sort of talking over each other here. And very few are dealing with the, with the reality in the marketplace, which is that we don't know if this thing works. We don't really have any assurances that Google isn't going to change the rules every six to 12 months uh, so that all of the learnings that you might obtain now, well, if the algorithm changes, well, those learnings aren't going to be much good to you down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, respectfully, Belichick always takes advantage of prime time, but I'll, I'll leave that. <laughs> I'll leave that to the side. <laughs> I get one plug in. Um, no, I think there's definitely a whole matriarch of issues that are at hand, and we're all kind of wandering into the unknown, so to speak. Um, but I think at the same time, there's a lot of opportunities that probably present themselves, whether that's within the privacy sandbox or outside of it um, as a publisher. And I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on those maybe one to three top of mind opportunities that could be interesting for a publisher to explore as we're all navigating. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. The, the, the one thing that the privacy sandbox is, has forced is uh, a reevaluation of, of what's working and what isn't. Because I think that we've, we as an industry have probably been a little stuck, uh, you know, the last five to seven years in many respects. And, and so the, the one positive, the, the, the silver lining here is that I think folks are really starting to, to look 
in, in two broad directions. One is like alternative forms of addressability. And that's, that, that's an area that I think has been woefully underinvested in uh, over the last 10 years. Because it's not like we didn't see it collectively. We, we saw this coming, right? And, and that, that's an area that's been just underinvested and that started to change. And then, then there's sort of a, a separate idea of like a privacy by design thing, which privacy sandbox is certainly one of them. Like it's a, you know, it's a, it, 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 it's an attempt to, to address some of the, the, the privacy concerns. I, I, my, my issue with it is that Google controls it and, and it, it, we haven't really demonstrated that it's going to work. So from a publisher standpoint, it's kind of an, it, it's, it really is best of times, worst of times thing. What's interesting now from a publisher standpoint is that there's a whole bunch of stuff now in the marketplace that people can test. And I think smart publishers are testing that. Some of it is in just, you know, alternative forms of IDs. I see a whole bunch of, you know, uh, uh, things that I'll call like enhanced, you know, uh, enhanced targeting without tracking and, 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 you know, or maybe even enhanced contextual, you could even, you could even call it. Uh, th there's a lot of interesting things going on there where there are companies that aren't targeting users, but they're targeting sites because of insights that they've derived uh, elsewhere. And I think that, that is super exciting and, and hopefully publishers are, uh, are leaning in on that. But, but right now I worry a little bit for publishers because it's, it's really, you know, I feel like the New York Timeses of the world are going to be fine. Uh, you know, the uh, Alan Chappelle's <laughs> 90s indie music blog is also going to be fine. But the middle is really the area that concerns me. And, and you know, you've even seen recently, uh, as a musician, the pitchfork thing is, is, a, is a huge bummer. Uh, Sports Illustrated, I mean, I grew up on that. Like there's just, you know, th these are not, small names and uh and we're seeing more and more of that and the reason we're seeing more and more of that is because it's becoming harder and harder for publishers to monetize um i you know uh and that that's uh, that's a shame i think there's, there's a, a monetization component but also a speed to market component right mm -hmm. when you look at a sports illustrated their entire legacy business was built around what happened in last week's sports and so on and so forth, right? Whereas now it's, it's so much more real time um, and what is of interest to the user or the reader. And I think the deprecation of that third party cookie and the relevance of what they've read and what they've done is going to be a lot harder. So first party collection is going to be that much more of a kind of a gold standard in my opinion. But do you have any strategies in your mind on ways publishers can monetize better, track their users maybe a little better, keep them closer to the cards of the house or closer to the house? Would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that publishers with strong and compelling niche audiences, I think, are, are going to be in much better shape. You know, uh, I, I think but but I almost think that's that's always been the case. Um, I, I think that uh, I worry about the concept of first party because it's one of those terms that everybody uses because first party is akin to get out of jail free uh, yep. from a privacy standpoint and it also is 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 code for high value um, and and those things are not necessarily true i mean what, what once you take publisher's a data and it gets used elsewhere it's no longer first party to publisher a even if publisher a is the one leveraging it it's 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 a different thing, and so I I think for you know for uh, for a lot of those publishers, I'm I'm really just seeing sort of a back to the a back to the basics. Uh, you know, really rely on contextual. For better or worse, there's a uh, 
you know, a continued race to the bottom when it comes to intrusiveness that I don't think is in any publisher's uh, interest, but I kind of get because it's just really hard to monetize. Sure. Do you think that this consortium of first-party data, like the DSPs are trying to attack with their new ID solutions or addressability, is going to get exploited, blown up, or potentially just left alone because there needs to be some bit of tracking? What do you think on that? I think it's going to remain the same. I think they're going to have, as big as Trade Desk is, it's, it's going to be really challenging for them to scale this. I don't think I'm telling them anything they don't already know. <laughs> Uh, and and that that's really at the end of the day that's going to be the challenge. I think they've sort of realized that and, and sort of t- taken the approach where they're adopting a couple of different ways. And it may just be a a tiered addressability thing where yeah. you know whomever you can use the UID is probably at a higher CPM than than somebody who's you know who you're getting via probabilistic uh, because you have a better idea of who the person is who you're getting via the U- UID. Yeah, absolutely. And I think clearly it's we're all in kind of the same boat from a testing perspective. And I think clearly within the nature of collaboration as well, it, it can really pr- prove very valuable for us to be sharing as much insight and data and finding as we can with each other um, to just get through this really fun time. But I think um, it'd be helpful to hear from your perspective if there's any certain metrics or benchmarks that are being used to evaluate the effectiveness of the privacy sandbox thus far from your own conversations or perspectives with publishers in the space, and I guess the potential outcomes on both sides of the table for both publishers and advertisers. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's right now it's a little too early. The only things that the only people that have even been you know, somewhat public about this is the Raptive guys, and I have a lot of respect uh, for them. They seem a lot more enthusiastic about a 35% dip than I am, but but th- they're really smart, and I think their thinking is that they can get if they can get 35, you know, get that down to 15, they're they're really doing pretty well. I I'm not sure that they'll be able to, but but boy, they sure know better than me. Um, you know, I, I think you're, you're starting to see a lot of the consent management platforms, you know, mm-hmm. uh, re- really take the lead. That, that's sort of a really interesting space because I, I think historically that's been a difficult place to differentiate yourself. Like, it, you know, the, the, the idea of you've built a CMP that's like a Cadillac versus a Hyundai. And like, you know, you can have all the Cadillac features, but if the marketplace is perfectly happy driving around in a Hyundai, you're going to have a hard time charging Cadillac prices. Well, now we might be in a in a world where you can because you know you're offering some additional you know some additional features and functionalities. So because the key for publishers is can you make this seamless? You know can you let let them you know let them continue to do what they do very well, which is putting out compelling content. Uh, and and uh, so the the CMPs who are able to do that, I think, are going to be in really good shape. That's fair. And Tina, I'm going to ask the, uh, the question that you probably can already predict, but AI. <laughs> AI, I think, has been a thorn, but also a godsend for many people. It just depends on you know, where you're at in the industry or what your job function is. In terms of intellectual property and where it stands from, you know, I think just legislation, how far it is behind or ahead, depending on your opinion, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'm going to just limit to two specific areas because there's so much within AI. 
the, the, the first thing that's sort of fascinating to me is like, you know, we talked a couple of minutes ago about enhanced, uh, you know, uh, enhanced targeting capabilities. And, and a lot of those are built on AI, to the extent that you're doing a contextual thing that's pulling data from other sources and doing sort of interesting things with it. And, and uh, I think a lot of those things are really interesting, but I'm also wary of, you know, well, sooner or later, publishers are going to realize that, well, wait a minute, you're getting data from third party, from other sources in order to build out your AI product. You know, are any of those sources my intellectual property? And publishers are, are understandably going to want to take a very broad view of what they consider their intellectual property. And so that hasn't really been addressed. You know, uh, having a lot of clients uh, building out uh, AI, and, and we're still in the stages where the distinction between, like, AI and what I'll consider traditional interest-based advertising is yeah. is still kind of minute, but but you can see directionally where it's going and like you know they're going to be able to pull out you know uh, a whole bunch of additional insights from you know two or three basic targeting criteria and that's really fascinating. You can you can you know do you know you do more with less and that's absolutely fascinating. The one thing that I've noticed is that teams sometimes as they're building these things don't realize that from the perspective of regulators, if you have any insight attached to, to user number one, two, three, four, five, sure. that insight is personal information. And that insight, depending on how, you know, what it is, might even be sensitive personal information. And there's this sort of going in notion that like AI will somehow, you know, magically wash away the personal information and it, it doesn't really work that way in most of the time. Agreed. Uh, and same coin, different side, authentication yeah. I think is, is worth talking about, right? Mm -hmm. On the publisher side, I, you see this probably more times than I do, but yep. uh, them producing not just image-based content, but also just text-based content. Mm -hmm. How do you authenticate against that and make sure it's brand safe for just the advertising or advertiser trying to get on the page, but also that the reader is uh, receptive to what's being produced. Yeah, th this is going to be fascinating to watch because because you know th th there's been there's been a trend going back like 30 years where journalism is really expensive and gets crummy CPMs, advocacy is relatively cheap and gets great CPMs, and that's probably the number one issue that's been impacting publishers over the last 20 or 30 years. Now you add in AI. You can now do a whole bunch of jazz hands onto stuff uh, and build it out fairly cheaply and, and oftentimes without human intervention. Uh, and so, uh, you know, is that going to be the thing that saves uh, the publisher industry or is that going to be the final nail in the coffin? And it's not clear to me which one of those it is. It's probably going to be both. Yeah, and I mean, I think we talked about this before as well. Um, it's strange that there's not yet disclaimers around when AI is used to support and or complete entirely certain articles. I, I do think AI, there's a place for it in terms of automation as a way of putting down the, the structure of an article, for mm -hmm. example, a better headline that's more SEO driven, et cetera, et cetera. But you still can really tell when a human hand has not touched an article um, and there's not really a clear regulatory need or decision around when that's going to happen, which is also slightly 
terrifying um, and also <laughs> introduces the whole topic of ethical AI, which you were kind of going into a bit before. Alan, with all these different companies building their own, are they truly building their own or are they just leveraging somebody else's where you're kind of putting yourself at risk of how those biases and whatever else was already set if you can't control that data set? Um, so I think it's going to be a fascinating year for ethical AI, for the disclaimers, and also the fact that it's shocker an election year just to throw <laughs> more gas on the fire and the amount of concerns with mislabeled creatives, with um, AI not being able to pro properly detect the right type of ad to put on the right type of social impact content or the meaningful content just being blocked entirely from advertising because it, per it set off the alarm on some archaic antiquated block list. Um, it's definitely not a polarizing year at all. <laughs> well, I, I, I like to think of uh, AI as sort of the new targeted advertising. And what I mean by that is like, it is gonna get all of the regulatory and legislative fuel uh, and fire for the next three to five years at, at a minimum, uh, because there are just so many intertwined issues. Like I, I had a friend who pu published something uh, on LinkedIn just, just the other day, and it was, you know, everybody who does anything on co third party cookie deprecation feels like, I guess, legally, you have to show something with an actual picture of a cookie. <laughs> like, you, you can't not do that, apparently. And so, uh, but my friend, what my friend did is he took some AI image of the Keebler elf house burning to the ground, which is, which I, I thought was kind of funny uh, to describe cookie deprecation. But, but what's sort of interesting is, like, I, I wonder if the Keebler people are going to be too happy about, like, that depiction. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, hadn't even really thought about that. And, like, is that, you know, is that uh, parody? Is that covered under the First Amendment? Probably. But you can probably, you know, but, but what if it turns out that thing was being published by, by a competitive snack company? Um, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Point. Ha hashtag justice for the Keebler elves. You've got to protect the little guy. You always. <laughs> um, how would you encourage advertisers or even publishers to engage with Congress in, in this progressive exploratory phase in the future? Do you think it's worth engaging with early? Should they include more technologists? What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I would say as a general thing, it would be really helpful to have more small to mid-sized publishers and advertisers uh, uh, making their presence known. And that's hard because that's really expensive stuff. But there are some cheaper ways to do that. I mean, Rob Beeler, who's an old friend, does a regular, you know, what, a couple of times a year does a, I think a mostly publisher-focused uh, visit to D.C., I think that kind of stuff is really helpful. You know, the, I, I, I'm uh, the board chair of a group called the NAI, which is really more of a third-party ad tech company, and we've got a, a couple of people who work on that. But the, but the one thing that I think is missing from a lot of these uh, discussions uh, is that there really is a balance here. Like, there, there are brands who w might not have, you may never have heard of, but for targeted advertising. Sure. There, there are publishers who can only keep the lights on but for targeted advertising. And when every single time the FTC comes in and changes the rule set or amends things with COPPA, you see more and more uh, uh, publishers directed to children going out of business or morphing their, you know, morphing their model. And so uh, I, I really do think that lawmakers need to hear more from, from that constituency. 
Absolutely. And yeah, no, I, I love what Beeler does and their Washington days are always super insightful and I'm excited to see how many more they can do this year for sure. Um, and on the Copa factor, it's also interesting to plug another Google product, YouTube. If you look at some of the largest YouTube channels and it's kids opening gifts, it's like billions of views, but yeah. there's not a single comment because kids aren't talking to each other because they're like five, six years old. It's just all likes and views. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how Google can get away with that and engaging with kids and putting certain ads in that player. But what about the publisher who's doing similarly the same thing, but just within their own environment? That's a good point. Well, that that's you know part of the challenge with with Kappa uh, has been that that the only people who can afford to be hundred percent compliant are like you know Disney and Viacom and yeah. Google, and because everybody else, it's really complicated and you just need to move your content away. And, and YouTube's an interesting example because they had had a settlement with the FTC not too long ago, mm -hmm. which restricted their ability. Now, I, I don't, I'm sure this hurt Google's bottom line too, but right now we're talking about the small to, to mid-size creator. And a lot of those creators uh, either uh, had to get out of that business or had to morph the, their focus uh, pretty significantly just as a result of that settlement because they weren't able to. And so I'm not here to say, well, you know, do, do whatever you want with the kids. It's, it, but I, I am here to say that, that you've got to be really careful about the, the downward implications of whatever policy choices that you make. And, and uh, for better or worse, I, look, I've been in the privacy world a while and it's entirely a, a, it's still way too much uh, one side yelling tastes great and the other side yelling less filling. Uh, it's just, uh, and, and it's, it's unfortunate that there just isn't enough uh, dialogue. And heck, even with the privacy sandbox stuff, it's like we're not, we're sort of touching on some of the issues, but there's so many disingenuous arguments and being made in the context of privacy that it makes real progress more difficult. That's fair. One thing that's worth even examining a little further is how Europe did it, right? I think EMEA, we're based in Spain or HQ'd in Spain, and we had to tackle this you know, some years back already, and we've been around for 10 years, so we're used to this kind of compliance factor. Um, so coming in and opening up the office in the U.S. a couple years ago, it was a much different approach. What do you think we can learn from the European Union, how they approach GDPR, or even some landmines as well, right? What are the two two factors that we need to consider as we go forward with this? So the GDPR as a document is a masterstroke. It's like our, our Declaration of Independence in, <laughs> in, in the U.S. No, I, and I mean that. It, it was so well thought out and so well put together. Definitely uh, suffers a little bit from what I'll call Euro bureaucracy. But, but the document itself, you, you have to give credit, it was so well thought out. That, that's the good side. The, 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 the bad side is that EU regulators really, really don't like targeted advertising, and they think that consent is the remedy for everything. And there's a whole bunch of, of, of even privacy-related issues. If you ask for a cons if you require consent for any data processing, you incentivize the marketplace to collect as much data as they can because data minimization goes out the window. Um, and that's sort of where we are right now in Europe, where we've got a little bit of a, you know, the GDPR makes sense. The, the e-privacy directive is problematic because if, in the, you know, if, if you believe 
the EU regulators, the supervisory authorities, you need a consent for a con to serve a contextual ad. Uh, okay, but, but then why is contextual better than targeted ads if you still need a consent for either? Very fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think when you are also looking between the US and Europe, there's obviously local nuances as it relates to culture, economic factors, um, and just different viewpoints. So I guess how can we hopefully one day have a more harmonized approach to global privacy? Not a hard question at all. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know that we're ever going to get there. Right now, there, there's, there's three prevailing thoughts. There's sort of the, the US, which, which even today is you know, rather laissez-faire in, in, in a lot of this stuff. And I think that's bad. I, I don't think that's the right approach at all. Uh, then you've got the EU, which is, which is certainly a little bureaucratic, but again, the over-reliance on consent is really their undoing because it's like you, 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 can't, have an act, you can't have actual businesses there if everything requires consent. Uh, and then you've got China, which is doing its, its, its own thing. But, but right now, I would say Europe is winning, for, for better or worse. I, I, I do think that, that a lot of the things that they've advocated for, that they built into their process several mm -hmm. years ago, uh, are certainly happening around the world, in Japan and South Korea. You, you now have Australia, who is seriously considering you know, requiring a consent for a whole bunch of things. And there's even some places that are saying, you know what, we think targeted ads are bad, so we should prohibit them. And you've got US states going, going there. So, uh, you know, right now, it, 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 if, uh, you know, we're all sports feds, apparently, like there's a, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, three, there's three divisions here. Right now, uh, Europe seems to be in the lead. Um, but uh, I, I don't know that harmonization is gonna be going to be something that's possible over the next 10 years. More than fair. Um, I would love to start to kind of wrap this up and get your thoughts on some anticipated trends within our industry and specifically how might certain advancements as relates to privacy and changing consumer behaviors kind of influence those trends. Sure, sure. So, well, the, the first thing is I, I, I think they're going to kick the can on cookie deprecation. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not, Confident Spoiler. that it's going yeah. to be much past Q1. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the Competition and Markets Authority ha, uh, has the wherewithal and the inertia to, to, to really uh, stop th this crazy out of control train. Uh, but, but I do think, I, I do think it's it, just based on what we know now, I think it's going to be difficult for, for Google to be able to make the case that whatever it is they're offering has any equivalence to to the third-party cookie, and I think that's gonna that's gonna cause some uh, a standstill, and so that that's gonna be that that's prediction number one. I, I think prediction number two is that that you're you're really gonna start to see uh, uh, a move towards. Yeah, I mean, this has already happened, but the, the walled gardens, I think you're going to see, you know, Shopify is now kind of a walled garden, right? And, and like, you're going to see, you're going to see more and more like, you know, uh, the Eric Sufert thing where there's, you know, just, just uh, more and more uh, content fortresses across, you know, large 
you know, large entities who have a decent number of, uh, of, of users. I, I think that's, that's going to be, you know, for the next year, that's, that's really going to be the trend. I, I think you're going to see a pretty significant consolidation. It won't be in, it won't be in 2024. It probably won't be in 2025, but in 2026, you, you're, you're going to see a pretty significant consolidation. And, and one of the reasons for that is that ad tech, if nothing else, and bless, bless our hearts, uh, is really good at selling stuff. And so for the next year and a half, we're all going to be selling that whatever that you're offering works just as well as the status quo and better than everybody else's. And so, uh, and it's going to take, I think it's going to take advertisers a year or two to really sort that out. Well, strap in. It's going to be yeah. a really fun year. <laughs> no, no pressure at all. <laughs> all right, we're going to go a little personal now. What is the best and worst advice you've ever received before wrapping this up? Because I feel like in your 20 years experience, you've gotten a lot of good and a lot of bad. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I, I've got a couple. Like, so I think when I was starting my business, uh, I went out and I did like a listening tour of people I had worked with previously. And one of those people I grabbed a beer with was a guy named Gene DeRose, who was at the time, well, he was the uh, chairman and CEO of a company called Jupiter Communications, which at the time, I'd worked for Gene for a number of years. And real smart internet luminary. Um, Anyway, he said, listen, the one thing you need to do is start a blog and focus on writing and build a platform from that. And it was the smartest advice. I know it sounds really simple and maybe even obvious now, but, <laughs> but in doing that, uh, I was able to build the book of business that I have today because I got to, was out there, I, I got to know people and I was able to build a platform. Um, the, the other person who has been really helpful to me is a guy named Jerry Harrison, who's probably best known as the guitarist for a band called Talking Heads. Um, and Jer <laughs> Jerry's been an old friend for about 10 years. And, and the thing that he's really gotten me focus, focusing my head on is like almost anything is possible. You just, and, and literally, and again, I'm back into Ted Lasso, I suppose. If you believe, and I, I used to call him like the Wizard of Oz because I've watched him work with people and and he, the, the, the biggest gift you can ever give somebody is, is, is the ability uh, to believe in themselves. Uh, worst advice? That's I've gotten this a lot. <laughs> no, no, I, I, and I won't give, I'll give names, and I think we've all been there. Like, don't ever let somebody tell you who you are or what you're capable of. Because when they're telling you that, they're speaking about themselves and they're not speaking about you. And that's, if there's ever advice you should ignore, it's advice of that nature. Preach, Alan. I love yes, it. I love it. I think that's a great, great place to end on. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much again, Alan. It's been a really, a true pleasure speaking with you, and I'm sure we'll have yeah. many more conversations in the future. Fantastic. It was, it was my pleasure, Tina and Mike. It was uh, just wonderful. Cheers, Amazing. Well, take care, and we'll talk soon. Thank okay, you. Okay, thanks.